I guess as a trader, I have the patience that the system forces me to have getting in and getting out. But, you know, without a systematic approach in uh, sort of normal investments like homes and real estate, it's really been a struggle. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives, and I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Jerry Parker. Jerry, are you ready to join the mission? I am. I'm very ready. I'm all fired up. <laughs> I've been uh, preparing for this because I, I'm interested in what you're doing, and I'm interested in the different aspects. And I also think that for my audience, there's there's some real value in, in what you're doing. One of the things that I'm going to say before I introduce your bio, introduce you, is that in the academic research, what we've learned that it's very hard to consistently beat the market. Almost every single way that, that we try to do that, it doesn't persist. But there's one strategy that seems to have some sort of persistence, and that is a strategy of momentum. And so... Jerry's an expert on that. Jerry started his trading career in 1983. That was when I graduated from high school in the Richard Dennis Tuttle program. He started Chesapeake Capital in 1988. Chesapeake manages about $200 million in private funds, mutual funds, ETFs, and managed accounts. All of the trading is done using a trend-following plus nothing approach. The funds are maximally diversified and include bond, commodity, and currency futures, stocks, crypto, and foreign exchange forwards. Jerry is active on Twitter and Twitter spaces. You can see him at RJ Parker, JR09. And he does every morning, every Friday morning, he does a Twitter spaces. I'll have links to his Twitter and other stuff in the show notes. Jerry, tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Oh, well, um, the unique part really is unique from the typical managed futures CTA that uh, uses trend following is we don't add anything to the trend following. So it's trend following plus nothing. Although we are trend following everything that we can find, liquid markets around the world, exchange traded that add diversification to the portfolio. And one of those major markets that we trade is the stock market in the U.S. stocks and European stocks. And that's very rare for a CTA to trade stocks. They usually just trade the stock index futures in order to get that stock exposure. But we felt like we would get better diversification by choosing a, a large portfolio of equities on purpose, choosing them to create this diversification. And then also... We're hunting these outlier trades and trying to find the big trends. And typically, 10% of our trades are going to make all the money for us in any one year. Mm -hmm. And the rest will be sort of small or break even. And we're going to find more of these outliers if we're trading these individual stocks, long and short, versus trading an index. So most CTAs will 
market themselves as crisis alpha for equities and allocate a small percentage of your portfolio that contains stocks and bonds to manage futures. But we sort of said, well, let's give people the option to trend follow the stocks themselves. So the stocks, they need some help. Every market that is out there needs to have a trailing stop and a stop loss, a place to get in and a place to get out so you don't have these big drawdowns. And let's just apply this wonderful trend following directly to equities. And so we think it's a very unique, and it is a very unique product, and especially um, in the ETF format that we just came out with uh, about three months ago. Mm. Yeah. And I think when I think about the people listening to this, there's two groups that I think would find this discussion interesting. The first is people who are just interested in trend following and they're, they've been learning about it. They've been you know trying to understand more. I think you'll learn a lot in this discussion and learn a lot by following Jerry on Twitter. But also there's other, let's say, more institutional or family office that are managing a portfolio and maybe they're managing that portfolio based upon, you know, they like value stocks or maybe they're looking at quality growth or growth at a reasonable price. And those are, you know, different strategies that work sometimes, sometimes they don't. But by being pure trend following, as you say, trend following plus nothing, in theory, owning a portion of your strategy could provide benefits to that overall portfolio. Would that be correct in saying that? How would you, you know, talk about that? I think so. A part of it is coming from our choice of stocks to trade. And then part of it is the trend following overlay. It's going to give a different type of performance. You know, sometimes trend following fails miserably. We're getting into the worst thing now. Yeah. So some, mm. I can remember sometimes it just fails horribly. Whenever mm. there's a V bottom, you know, the CTAs kind of get in and then all of a sudden it goes down a little, but then it rallies like COVID period or different periods where the market just sells off very quickly. And the, the trend followers can barely get short. And then by the time they're short, it rallies back to new highs. So that's not going to work out that great in a trend following strategy. Mm. But sometimes that doesn't occur and the CTAs really do add value and they are able to get in the stocks at a good period and and then start taking profits when the trend in each individual stock starts to turn around and they have the stop losses. So it can be a very different type of strategy overall. And you're not doubling up on your stocks when you add trend following stocks. But of course, our funds have half of the portfolio is not stocks. So it the whole fund's performance is going to look quite a bit different than what just about anything really. And when you talk about, you know, the the challenges of trend following during particular market periods, I presume that's what draws trend followers into blending in other strategies, thinking, okay, I've got to try to protect for that period. And how can I make sure, you know, that type of thinking then draws them into add something to the trend following approach. Would that be correct? I mean, how do you see that? Yeah, well, trend following is a very bumpy ride. You know, you're taking these small losses, maybe 60% of the trades are losers. And then you're just hoping and praying for these outlier trades, these big trends that are going to make all this money. And then you got to hold on to them for a long time. You can't get out too quickly. They have a tendency to be volatile Hmm. and give back profit and try to shake you out of the trade and get you to get out quicker and take smaller profits. So 
people are always trying to figure out ways to minimize that volatility and that bumpiness. And we've chosen to do that by trading more and more markets and trying to do it that way. But a lot of CTAs do trade trend following plus a lot of other things that different micro strategies that probably don't help very much in the long run, but they can Mm. definitely help smooth out the performance in Mm. the short run. The trend following itself is going to be the heavy lifter. It's going to make all this money. And I, I do understand why other managers do add in other strategies, even though we've chosen not to. Mm. And let's just define what trend following is and what trend following is not, maybe in your most simplest way of explaining. Keeping in mind, my mother's listening. <laughs> well, essentially taking small losses or limit the losses to a small, smallish size and then letting profits run. So if it's a profit, you're going to handle that trade much, much differently. You're going to be bold with it. You're not going to be eager to get out. You're going to um, sit with some volatility and some profit give back. But if it's a loss, you're going to try to kill that loss pretty quickly. All of these parameters and ideas need to be vetted with some sort of backtesting analysis to see what's actually worked in the past. Mm. If you're going to use breakouts, are you going to use moving averages? What's your look back period going to be? You know, how long, what sort of trends are you after? Long-term trends or short-term trends? When I first started trading, we traded pretty short term. And now we've, our average holding period is about a year. So we don't try to get in and out. We try to ride these really long-term trends, like the bond market, the short bonds that we've been in for a year or two, and that gets all the press these days. Yeah, you just they've been volatile. This past March, they had a tremendous rally, but you just try to come up with uh, rules and, and methods that don't get you shaken out too quickly. And we were able to stay in almost all of those shorts, but sometimes it doesn't work as well as it did then. But hmm. I think that's trend following in a nutshell. You're buying if it starts going higher, selling when it starts going lower, but you've got to have some specific rules and parameters to always use. And what, what's the level of turnover roughly in your portfolio annually? Well, we, like I said, we, we average about one trade per year. So we're probably going from long to short almost every market, at least you know once per year. That seems like an incredibly long period of time for trend following. When someone thinks of that, I would think, you know, that you would have said something much, much higher. Yeah, you wouldn't think that this long-term approach would work very well. But the markets these days are very choppy. And there's so many people in the markets doing different types of trading, computer trading, and relying upon, you know, certain types of styles and backtesting. And so... You'll get these nice trends, but they just have a tendency to be very choppy. So mm. you want to allow have a have a methodology that stays in the market, and this is how we sort of get paid. We we try to figure out we want to stay in as long as we can and maximize the the potential in these big trends and not get out too quickly. But then we don't want to stay too long, you know, because you're going to have a big give back possibly when the trend ends. So that's what we're sort of paid to do is to figure that out. And one way to do that is to trade multiple trend following strategies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have different entries and exits and multiple different what we call systems. And that helps with the diversification as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the perfect dinner party guest. 
you get in there long enough to enjoy the ride and you get out when the party starts turning. You get emotional, you get greedy. You don't want to leave. That's when the trouble begins. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let me ask you, what what is the universe? If we were just look at stocks, are we talking about the top 100 most liquid stocks in the world? Are we talking about 1,000? Are we talking about 5,000? You know, I, I know, for instance, Vanguard, for those for reference for those people that are listening, the Vanguard VT fund has about, it's getting close to 10,000 stocks now around the world, which you could say there's 10,000 stocks that are large enough and liquid enough to be in a global fund. They may not be large enough and liquid enough for trend following, but I'm just curious, like, what is your universe from the stock perspective? Well, basically, it is, you know, all the stocks, and we just have to whittle them down to the ones we want, but it's mm. about 150 stocks, a lot of commodity-based stocks, but different. One of the weird things that CTAs do, and we certainly do, is we choose these stocks strictly based upon liquidity and diversification. No, with, without any, we don't really care how it's performed historically, whether it's been a big mover, buy and hold, or whether the trend following systems have made money in the stock. We really don't care. We don't pay too much attention to the past performance of any of these markets. We think that they'll all trend eventually, and you can't really predict these things about when and how it's going to trend. So it really is just seeking out companies that maybe have a commodity relationship, or we think that they're small enough you know, that they can have a big trend, maybe just a company that's not well diversified. That would be very helpful. Mm. We don't want a company that has many different business lines. It's probably going to be better for a company that has one business line to get a big trade, some fundamental will, something fundamental will happen in this company and with the supply and demand or shortages or who knows, but then that may send it off on a big, huge trend versus a company that's very diversified, multiple lines of business, really nothing is, it's going to be really difficult to shock that and get a big trend. Mm. And when we put all these companies together and we put them in with the currencies, commodities, and interest rates, we're going to get a lot of diversification. But we, we want to create that diversification. We don't want diversification from others. We want the big outlier trends. Mm. And I'm just curious if we could take a step back. And you know, you've had many, many years of experience in the market. You've got many years of experience doing specifically what you do. But I want to take a step back and think just briefly about the typical investor, the average fund manager. What would be your advice about the best risk management? You know, what's the best way to manage risk generally, not necessarily for your portfolio strategies? Well, I think it is going to be pretty close to what we do. I think diversification is key, real diversification. It's certainly key for trend following to trade all of these different markets and sectors. The S&P usually has like an 8% return on average or something like that, but it has over 50% drawdown. So it's pretty bad. But if I traded only the stocks, it probably wouldn't be much difference or only the currencies or only the commodities. You know, you want to have as much diversification as possible. You certainly want to take short trades. I mean, shorts are so powerful. Sometimes that's the only game in town. There's nothing mm. else to do. You mentioned earlier before we came on air something about cash. Mm. You know, cash is fine, but usually if you can flip it around and go short some of these markets, you're going to 
do pretty well and it's going to give you some great diversification and profit opportunities. Rules-based, wow, what, how important is having the rules, having process, having a systematic approach so you, when all hell breaks loose, you can you know what to do. Maybe one of your rules is to trade smaller, cut back. That mm. can be very important to just simply go in during bad periods and trade smaller, reduce your, yeah, raise some cash, reduce your, your positions. That is, I think, the ultimate risk management. It works every single time reducing your risk in, in that particular way. That was one of the first rules I learned in 1983. Cut back on those positions when you're in a bad situation. The markets are crazy, you know, kind of like COVID, February, March of COVID. Okay, so let me let me let me summarize that so far. So you're talking about reducing risk through number one, diversification. Number two, making short trades. That there's those are times when the market's down and you've got an opportunity or that stock or that instrument's down. You mentioned, you know, cash is fine, but you know, if you could flip the script on that and say, how do I try to profit when the market's down? And then finally, you said rules-based as in, you know, such as trade smaller, cut back. Is there anything else you'd add to that? Oh, for sure. The heart and soul of trend following, take small losses. Don't ever let a, a small decision ruin your portfolio and your performance. Mm. And psychologically, you know, just get used to losing. You know, I listened to a podcast the other day from a really famous trader, and he just he said, All I want to talk about is losing, losing, just lose, become a professional loser, get out of those losing trades and and look at the your portfolio in terms of the trade and handling each one of these individual positions perfectly and properly. And that means taking small losses. And if you do, at the end of the day, the accumulation of all those great decisions, you'll be very happy with your portfolio. Mm. And then, of course, the one mistake that everyone makes, it's kind of a risk thing, and that's letting profits run. Because you need to maximize those profits. You're going to get into more bad situations on the losing side if you don't handle the winning side properly. Mm. So everybody gets afraid of, of winners. They're going to lose it back. This money belongs to me. I made it. I don't want to lose it. But you have to be more willing to let those profits run. We always underestimate how far markets can go. Mm -hmm. And we should be very cowardly with our losers. Everybody thinks the losers are going to come back. Just hold on to it. It's not a loss yet if I don't get out. And this is not what people say who want to live a long time in the markets. But yeah, it's really all about, in my mind, that's exactly how I've approached it. I I was an accountant, and so I have natural conservatism and naturally don't like losing money, and I want to be safe. Mm. And this is really what trend following can give you is tremendous safety with all those features I mentioned, mm. but without hardly no compromise on the upside potential of making money. Right. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of great stuff. <laughs> I've got more questions, but I think we ought to move on to the main point of this podcast, which is now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, I think I've had some bad investments before. And when I first started in the investment business, one of my mentor is a really famous, wealthy person. He told me, you know, 
outside of trading with all my investments, I don't think I ever made more than the treasury bill rate. And at that time, I didn't really know what he meant. But now I totally know exactly what he meant because I really haven't had much success outside of the trading, you know, in this sort of way where Hmm. I sort of always prefer transparent mark to market, something I can put into my brokerage account and trade. I know the value of it all the time. I can take that small loss. I can short it if I want to. I can use the trend following. I can build up this great diversified portfolio. That's what I've preferred. That's what I've been good at. But certainly over the years, you know, I've had some stinker investments in real estate and gold. And one of the things that I just messed up on my real estate was, you know, overpaying and not being patient, I think, in fixing things up too much. You know, I I would look at some of these investments and say, I want to make the Taj Mahal. I want to make this into something really great. And I just don't think that's the way to do it in real estate. It hasn't worked for me. And then patience, you know, I guess as a trader, I have the patience that the system forces me to have getting in and getting out. But, you know, without a systematic approach in uh, sort of normal investments like homes and real estate, it's really been a struggle. And so I've sort of become more of an Airbnb Uber type person where when it comes to, you know, real life investments or real estate and things, I like to rent it or give it back to the person who owns it. Or maybe like, instead of owning another beach house, go to a nice hotel somewhere. I just understand totally the cost and the taxes and all of the upkeep and things that it it takes to to manage real estate and, and have nice places. But I guess over time, I've really s- sort of seen that as a huge mistake and, a, and probably the thing that bothers me the most. It's just so freeing to be able to pull up your brokerage account and look inside and see the, the stocks or the, the trades you've done and the markets you have. And if you don't like them, you can sell it right away. And I think that that's the sort of luxury that I really love. And I just, it has never been suited for um, you know, maybe more traditional type investments. Mm. And what would be like the most annoying moment of that, all those different things that you've mentioned, where it's like, yeah, I'm going back to, you know, my trading. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I think that, you know, it has to be one of the, my, um, my homes that I bought and, uh, and, you know, just trying to speculate in real estate and trying to think that I knew what I was doing. And, you know, at some point in time, you, I would get in there and I just would remember, you know, that, that cliche of, you know, if you're at the poker table and you don't know who the, the patsy is, it's usually you. So sometimes I thought I knew what I was doing in some of these real estate. And then it's just a humbling experience to sort of all of a sudden realize that, you know, you were the least experienced and the least knowledgeable and it, you know, and Mm. that's exactly what's happening in your bank account. It's going down because of that. (laughs) And how would you summarize the lessons that you've learned from all of these experiences? Well, I think a good lesson is to understand what you're capable of and understand your limitations and be afraid of situations you're unfamiliar with and assume the worst. You know, um, I always have a a place when I put a, a trend following trade on where I know I'll get out and take a small loss. And so if you can't do that in a normal and a regular investment, then you need to really trade small and or invest small. 
I think that's one of the big keys. Mm. Yeah, maybe one of the takeaways, it reminds me in some ways about me. I mean, I I came to Thailand with nothing in my pocket, basically. And that was 1992. I started working in the markets in 1993 and, you know, had a 20-year career. But I also had a business that we set up a factory with my best friend that we've been running now for 29 years. And so I always had a need for cash for that business. That kept me conservative. And then I poked around in real estate and I thought, no, not for me. And I sold what I had. And I love renting. I love traveling and going to nice places and knowing that I never have to go back if I don't want to. And as opposed to, I you know, was originally many years ago thinking I was going to have a house in the countryside and, you know, go there on the weekends, but man, I'm so happy. I didn't bring that burden on myself. <laughs> and so that the freeing and nowadays, you know, the problem you have in America, of course, is everybody's incentivized to, to borrow and buy. And so it's, it's very hard to fight against that. But in Thailand, there's not as much incentives to borrow and buy. And therefore, particularly, you know, homes and land and stuff, it's a little bit easier to resist, but I definitely would love to convey that message to listeners and viewers out there that, you know, do what feels right for you, but don't feel pushed into something just because everybody else is doing it. If you don't like owning or your concern or whatever, rent, anything you would add to that? Well, I just thought of something else. I, you know, when I was in my 20s in college, I I watched a TV show and they were talking about, and this was a period of high inflation and they talked about gold and I investing in gold and they just wove this story about inflation and gold and prices going up and I just sort of bought it and I thought this is the greatest thing ever. I can just own gold. So I would actually, as a, as a 20 year old, I was trying to buy gold and I did and I became so emotionally attached to it. And I just thought it was, I just fell in love with it. And I, that and that has gotten me in trouble so often mm. with uh, investments is that you have a game plan, you have a discipline strategy, but when it comes time to get rid of it, you really hesitate to do it. You follow, I remember following other people. I remember Soros buying gold once and he was really bullish and I was buying it as well. And then Later, I heard he sold it. I was like heartbroken, like, what? Why? <laughs> so a cold, having a cold mentality and, and no emotion is, you know, I think very important in investing. But I guess yeah. as a young person, you know, you have to go through, you have to make these mistakes. And, and so here's yeah. a mistake that was, you know, 40 years ago, and I, I still remember it. It's interesting because as I listen to your history, it sounds like trend following provided a structure that you didn't have. And when you found it, it's like, okay, this works for me. Exactly. I mean, we always talk nowadays about in educating investors and, and maybe we're not doing a good job on educating them. But I have, I think that it's mostly the trend following is just not very appealing. It has a lot of negative characteristics that mm. it's counterintuitive. People don't like it. Because when I first heard of trend following, when I was an accountant back in Richmond, Virginia, in my 20s, I learned such so little about it. There was no internet. There was no mentors. I loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Mm. Take small losses, let profits run, 
I mean, how much better could that be? And then yeah. I heard about leverage and diversification and shorts. And I was like, sure, sure. That probably works well. All I know about is, all I've ever heard about is stocks, but I can see, you know, shorting yeah. or trading other types of markets and using leverage. I was so totally open-minded and I just loved it. But you're probably right. It probably just had more to it than I was a type of person who needed order and structure and objectivity. I thought maybe following prices was great. And it was an organization. You know, the world is so complex mm. and there's so many pieces of information that you can get to make a decision on what to buy or sell that I really did love. Just look at price, just look at the charts, the breakouts and the moving mm-hmm. averages. And I really, really spoke to me. Yeah. When I was thinking about what you were saying, I was thinking, let the market do all the hard work. You know, the, the fundamental analysts are upgrading the price or the, the value and the price is starting to move. Well, that's what you're trading on in that particular case, possibly because you're trading what's happening, you know, in the market. Now let, let's think about a young person, you know, as they're, they're facing this world of financial opportunities. It's so broad, as you've said, and let's focus in not on the trend falling aspect, but on the worst investment ever and the the challenges that you face. What would be one action that you'd recommend that they take, you know, as they're starting looking at all these assets and all these opportunities that would help them avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think the most important thing I think is a mentor and and getting a mentor and working for someone, maybe not the highest salary, maybe not exactly the greatest, but a great mentor in a field that you're passionate about and learn from them. And that's what I did. But another thing, I was ready. I was prepared as much as I could have been to grab a hold of that opportunity. No one should ever expect to have the opportunity that I had to uh, get the job that I did with these genius people who Mm. taught me everything I needed to know about trading. But when I went up for the interview, they hired me because I had done a lot of studying and I had a lot of knowledge. So you need to be ready for a big break. And maybe your break won't be as big as mine, but I wouldn't have gotten it if I hadn't been ready. But it definitely cemented in my mind how important it is that once you, even after you graduate from college or you have experience, continue to find that mentor who can guide you and lead you and really put you many, many steps ahead of where you would have been. Because I don't know if I could have ever figured, you know, all of this out on my own. Like it wakes me up at night sometimes when I think about it. Like, what if I hadn't have gone to Chicago or answered that ad in the Wall Street Journal? Mm. Where would I be today? You know, Mm. you've got to get these breaks in life and you have to maximize them. Taleb wrote this book and I forgot the name of it now, but in this book, he says- Anti-fragile uh, or fooled by randomness or black swan. Yeah, the black swan. He <clears> says, <throat> one of the most important things to do is to go to cocktail parties in Manhattan. And what he means is settle up next to really smart people mm-hmm. and get their coffee if you have to. Do anything to be mm-hmm. with them and be next to them. And I should have kept going with that because right. I didn't spend enough time with Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart. I only had four years for that mm-hmm. program. And so I should have begged to stay or maybe gone somewhere else and found someone else who could maybe teach me more about equities and stocks. And mm. I would have been ahead of the game more trend following equities than I ended up being because I we didn't trade those 
in Chicago, we just traded mm. the futures markets. Mm. All right. So what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, I would recommend what I do, which is find people on Twitter and mm. subjects you're interested in, investments that you're interested in. They're out there. Twitter is wonderful. It's fantastic. You can wade through the crap and find some good people who will tell you way too many good secrets. Mm. Mm. And then podcasts and books, but mainly podcasts for me or interviews. I love the interviews of traders and investors, the famous traders and investors. They tell way too many stories and give you way too much information and things you can't learn in college. So I read a lot and watch a lot of podcasts Mm. to try to pick up uh, little bits and pieces, even at my age, still trying to learn from others and copy others. I'm a world-class copier. Right. And for the listeners out there, you can listen to episode 707, which was my discussion with Jack Swagger, who basically interviewed some of the best traders out there. That was a, a great discussion. I think, you know, it's great advice for sure that there's so much out there compared to, well, in the old days, let's say. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. You know, stay disciplined, keep doing what I'm doing and not give in, not not panic. You know, um, 2021, 22, we had three great years. This year is not as great. Mm. And keep improving. You know, every day I'm in there working to make the portfolio better. And I just love what I do. People ask me, are you going to retire? I don't think I'll retire because I just have too much fun. And I, a long time ago, I stopped doing things that weren't fun for me. And so I'm, I definitely don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's not a good answer, but I, um, well, I'm such a process-driven person. Yeah. So I think just continuing to do that. And, and good things happen when you follow the rules and you follow your rules and you try to systematize every element of your life, mm. diet, fitness, but obviously, the most important thing, honestly, for me in, in the future is hanging out with my grandkids more. And uh, that'd be, yeah, that mm -hmm. would be really nice to do that. Yep. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Jerry, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Thank you for having me. And I'm going to go back and listen to some of your old podcasts as well. <laughs> I think those Jack Schwager books are awesome. That's amazing. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.